Hey guys, and welcome back to another podcast. We are very lucky to be joined by a special guest again this week. So we had Jack last week, and now we've got Luke, Luke Hoffman from the Muscle Mentors, the better side of the Muscle Mentors, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, obviously we've had Callum on in the past, two extremely knowledgeable guys probably leading the way to, so to speak, in terms of definitely putting out fantastic knowledge and awareness in the industry and you know, their coaching business is really lifting off this year with the um, sort of the the addition of, of two new coaches. Um, I heard on the Optimal Physique Development podcast that they are merely employees, apparently, <laughs> Luke. <laughs> so Ryan, who will almost definitely listen to this, is now hands in his head. <laughs> um, but yeah, in reality, they're doing great things. And um, I wanted to get Luke on the podcast, not only to sort of bring a little bit more awareness to Luke, I guess, in the sense that um, I don't think there's enough people following Luke and taking on board what he posts. Um, so hopefully a few of you guys will definitely listen to this and think, yeah, cool, I'm going to definitely follow Luke. Um, and we are going to run through, <laughs> we're going to run through some Instagram questions that we've got through yesterday on my profile. So um, thanks guys for the questions again, like always great interaction on, on these, these topics and uh, a lot of you did listen to what I said in the stories, and, and some of you definitely didn't. Um, the questions that the questions that are like nothing to do with Luke, we won't be answering. Funnily enough, because this podcast is about Luke and uh, no one else. So um, first things first, I said to Luke off air, I'd actually like him to discuss a little bit about where he's at in his bodybuilding journey and what his sort of current goals are and where he's currently heading. So Luke, just give us a bit of an idea as to sort of. Like where you're at, um, how long you've been doing this for, and what are your realistic plans when it comes to either like competing or just generically? Like what 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 are your goals at the moment within bodybuilding? Well, thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> the, um, that's a very kind word there, sir. Um, and I'm honoured to be here. Like when I remember when you asked me to do this, I was like, oh my god, I was like, must <laughs> be on this podcast. Um, the uh, prestigious. No. The, um, <laughs> The yeah, I mean my my journey is obviously those that know me know that myself and Callum Raystrick uh, co-own the the Muscle Mentors co-run that. We've just taken on a couple of coaches to help us out there in Ryan Hook and James Sutton, both very valuable additions who are obviously obviously more than just employees. <laughs> but yeah, they uh, they are like the the fellow the fellow coaches that we brought in to kind of help level things up and. Um, expand things for like james is coming on board to help from the education side because he's got some serious experience there um ryan's coming on to initially help you know scale up the coaching side of things um because both callum and i are kind of at capacity um and it's uh so that was logical um and um yeah i mean my journey specifically obviously i've been in the industry for a few years now i think me and cal started this in, or end of it like became a thing Towards right at the tail end of 2017, we kind of then built that up, it, up through 2018. It kind of launched in May, and then we we've been doing it then since. Had a few seminars, which both well, all three of those were very well received. And um, and then personal journey wise, it's kind of my my passion's always been in the education side of things. So I always like want to be, you know, building my my experience and presence on that and that side of the industry alongside sure. Cal and the guys and then from a you know com competitive bodybuilding perspective obviously I've always had the mindset that I would I've I always know I'm going to compete at some point it's just when I'm ready like I've always wanted to do it you know get on stage when I know I could compete as opposed to just get on stage for the sake of getting on stage because a lot of the stuff we speak about is like the the health ramifications of putting someone's, you know, putting your body through a prep. I would want to do it knowing that there's a possibility of actually coming away with something worthwhile than sacrificing health to such a degree and just being like, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. Yeah, it would be one of those things where, you know, I'd want to kind of everything I had into it. And if that means like taking a little bit longer to get there, then that's fine because ultimately it's all part of the same process. Um, and uh, and yeah, I suppose that's where I'm at. And now, uh, lucky enough to be a guest on this badass podcast. <laughs> no, thank you. And I think it's important that people are aware of the sort of where you're heading. And I think 
uh, a lot of some of the most successful bodybuilders actually sort of compete a little bit later on in their their career so to speak in terms of training um because the the issue is especially when i've gotten into the sport myself like i got in at such a young age from a competitive aspect and you know, whilst that's great in terms of getting stage experience, you're very right in saying that you know the ramifications of me competing, basically like three times by the age of 21, is they're quite big. Um, going through that process like time and time again is 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 not necessarily optimal for a lot of things. Um, so, yeah, I think you're you're making a really good, sort of good decision there. Um, and do you think the same in terms of like? sharing your physique progress because i noticed that you don't specifically share your physique progress that much do you do you do you think like in the perspective of i only want to share it once i'm happy or once i'm done with what work needs to be done yeah. like, okay. how do you view that because i noticed a few people don't really share too much i mean cal's sharing a bit more now because obviously he's heading into a prep and mm. things are going really well in his training but you know things are always going pretty well in your training like you know, yeah. you, you just seem to share the lifts as opposed to sharing the physique. And I think that's kind of interesting. Is there a reason why you do that? I think the is, is kind of with what I post, like the stuff, people that follow me know that I'm quite big into exercise mechanics. Mm. And, and that's, that's, you know, looking into that side of things. I think with my, obviously with my demographic being physique competitors and stuff, obviously, you know, people I coach, it makes sense to actually display my physique a bit more than I probably should it, it's more case of I literally never take progress pictures like I, I'm kind of I have a an objective enough eye of my own physique that I can kind of look at myself and know that I'm improving without the need to take pictures but yeah, the sure. but yeah I probably you know it's, it's, it's something I'll probably get better at but it's like where you know where I post more stuff about the lifts there, there'll be times where we'll we like with the on Monday we we played around with the pendulum squat. Well, it, it seems to be like every Monday I post a video of me dying on the pendulum squat. But like we've been kind of like slowly <clears throat> optimizing the setup of that particular piece of kit based on its mechanics. And on Monday we kind of finally nailed it. And I was like, oh, I just did it. now I can't really post another video of pendulum squat after <laughs> delay that for a while. But the um, the you know the, the the where I post stuff of me training, like you said, that's more because I'm always trying to link you know link some educational um content to what i post yeah and if yeah, i yeah. you know like i could post a picture of my um you know my physique but it's hard to start talking about exercise mechanics and that yeah. <laughs> but the, um, you know it's like um yeah i mean it's basically i don't like i don't post that I suppose it's like that meme, you know. You know, I I, I don't post that often, but when I do, <laughs> you know, but, and like I don't post that often, but when I do, I try and make the post quite like valuable. Yeah, and I, I think that's so I don't like thing. to just churn out, you know, content for the sake of churning it out. Yeah, but I yeah, agree. I will. I will endeavour to start sharing my seat because I don't. You know, sounds arrogant, but I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> I just don't like to share it. Um, yeah, I should get better at it. Especially if I'm going to go on stage at some point. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for, for people like me who follow you, like I I, I I know the weight of your knowledge regardless of looking at the way that you look. And we know that cause doesn't meet correlation with the way that someone looks and the, what they know and how they apply it. You know, genetics play such a ginormous role. But unfortunately, in the world of fucking Instagram, there's going to be a lot of people that follow you that think where's his physique, I can't believe what he does or why it's right until I see how he looks, which is mm. ridiculous, but it's the way some people's minds work. Um, and that's not to say that you should bow down to that whatsoever. I don't think that that's the, the purpose of anything. Um, but mm. I think that that's just a lot of way people think and it's, it's upsetting. But I think you'll eventually, when you know people do understand what you put out and they can apply it practically and they, then they realize, oh, okay, this actually makes a lot of sense then they won't need to see the way that you look to represent the knowledge that you know, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that's cool. Thanks for that, Luke. Um, so let's re roll into the questions. Uh, hit me. So, hit me hard, right, cool. So, Brad Johnson asks, <clears throat> in your opinion, if you could only pick five supplements to use for the rest of your training career, what would they be? Mm, five's quite big number to be fair but yeah five's decent yeah five's decent uh, it's, it's a stack yeah, that is it is like so that's a good question i think creatine's in there of course yeah um 
and that's like beyond training performance. So people kind of look at creatine and and we spoke about this on one of our podcasts recently, where people were like, "Oh my god, creatine does more than just fueling ATP recycling," <laughs> and it's like, like creatine. If you look at the what it does from a like biochemical standpoint, like we have. Um, yeah obviously it's used in in atp recycling you know um and that's one of the things it's been studied for in terms of improving energy production and like an acute level within training but the what i like it for more than that is the health ramification side and like people are, you know you just need to go on examine.com and see what it's been studied for but the um one of the things i really like it for is um its ability to improve um like methylation but also cognitive capacity like the the energy production obviously people look at that on like a a level of what's happening within muscle tissue but you've got to look at like every tissue in the body at some point is well at every point is using a lot of atp and if you can supplement to support that in every tissue everything's generally going to run better but one of the things that creatine has been studied for is its ability to improve like i said cognitive capacity so where people are essentially supporting energy um yeah and atp recycling and energy production within their you know, neuro neural tissues their um like the capacity to improve brain power is actually pretty impressive and then when you consider like training performance in general is and we, we speak about this in our seminars training performance is predicated upon a, a pretty well functioning nervous system in terms of like muscular contraction is is a, a neuromuscular driven process like it, it starts in the in the nervous system if you can optimize things from the nervous system downwards um things are all going to improve and that's where creatine's a damn good thing but the methylation side of things i mean people like methylation is a complicated thing just understand it's one of the key things underpinning health and there's a lot of there's a few amino acids that go into making creatine endogenously um and what your body will do get, i've got to take some some methionine and some glycine and whatever and i've got to make creatine whereas if you just supplement creatine you're basically preventing that the need for the body to pull from those aminos and you just have those guys left over to to do other stuff in the body but then you've got methylation supported and that's basically going to help with like pretty much every bodily process from a health perspective um so creatine's in um some people would probably expect me to say vitamin d but we we literally did a podcast and you you listened to that one, um, we, what we released on Monday, um, and the guy was talking about how vitamin D is, you know, we can't replicate the power of the sun, in a supplement form, and vitamin D is is like, you know, people trying to take a synth a synthetic version of what we replicate endogenously from being exposed to the sun, and um, the. <laughs> You know, he spoke about some of the mechanisms by by which vitamin D is, is used and stored in the body, and it kind of seems like supplemental vitamin D is actually pretty useless. Um, and uh, and then I looked into it, and it appears as though he's right. <laughs> like, there's not actually that much evidence to the vitamin D's um, like uses. And I've had it in client plans for as like one of the basic foundational six supplements that I recommend to people. And I'm putting that out now, um, and it, and it kind of comes down to <laughs> where people are yeah i i've known this for a while that we have the capacity to store um was it like four i think it's up to four months worth of vitamin d in the liver um and like when you look at how the human body has evolved to you know go through periods of the year whether you can't synthesize vitamin d that's why we've you know we, we don't need it in those times of year because we have the capacity to store it and people have kind of taken the whole thing of oh my god we can't synthesize vitamin d in the months of you know in the winter months and so we need to supplement with it and it's like actually that's just kind of you know humans being humans and kind of not looking into things and realizing that actually we've evolved to deal with that the issue is that people don't get enough sunlight in the summer months so if you're if you're not going to supplement with vitamin d which i i'm not a doctor so i can't you know obviously don't take this as medical advice consult with your gp and all that stuff but it's probably actually not the there's probably wiser things to spend your money on but just make sure you do actually get enough sunlight in um 
in the summer months and the times of the year where you can synthesize vitamin D and that isn't every all of the years so people if we want to look into that get an app called D minder um, and it basically tells you when you're able to get vitamin D um, let me do, if I put it up now like it's quite shocking sometimes when you go on and it's like oh your next available point of vitamin like for so apparently at this yeah so at this time of year we actually are able to get vitamin d so in an hour's time you're able to get it but there's a thing called the zenith angle with the sun which is why when we're in the winter um it's especially in the uk like we can't even on a sunny day you can't synthesize vitamin d um, and that app kind of tells you when so sometimes you go on it and it says oh your next opportunity to vitamin d is in like may and you're you're in november and it's like oh shit um, so yeah vitamin d wouldn't be in there um the i'd say magnesium um like the, the magnesium is an interesting one um because it's used in like 350 chemical processes in the body like energy production enzyme creation neurotransmitter creation everything um but the and it obviously depends on the type of magnesium so you know people that are loading up on magnesium oxide don't do that because it's poorly absorbed and you just get the shits use a, a well-absorbed form but the they did an interesting kind of meta-analysis in what 1964 and it was uh so what like 55 years ago yeah and um they basically concluded then that for optimal health human beings need about seven to ten milligrams per kilo body weight of magnesium and um and that was due to the presence of protein, you know, the amount of protein, calcium, vitamin D, and alcohol in the Western diet, and this was in Western societies. Um, and the uh, that you know, the, those four factors all kind of burn through magnesium pretty readily within the human body, and um, you factor in stress and pollution and all that stuff as well tack on another 55 years and that all those four factors have just increased substantially so we have more protein more alcohol more stress more pollution more vitamin d supplementation more calcium um so you can pretty it's pretty safe to say that we probably would benefit from having more magnesium in our diets and something being calcium a lot i'll i'll have clients where you know things are improving with health markers and sleep and training performance and recovery and all this stuff and but they're not quite there and you i look at their magnesium intake and it's like oh shit they're probably having like three four milligrams per kilo body weight and you jack that up closer to somewhere between that seven to ten mark and things take a massive improvement you can kind of see the see the data to confirm that but the you also look at the statistics and literally like the the amount of people that are magnesium deficient is pretty astounding um so i'd say magnesium's not only a very wise thing to consume but it's also pretty damn cheap um yeah. like you can get a good magnesium citrate um on uh on amazon by solgar magnesium glycinate by uh nutri advanced that, that's a very good one um supplement needs are coming out with one but it, and it's like one of those things that you know magnesium is you know it's chelated with different minerals like citrate glycinate or different amino acids um and um they all have their own benefits so like glycinate is obviously glycine that has a quite a positive effect with calming the nervous system so you can kind of pick and choose your magnesium well so if someone's kind of stressed out glycinate might be quite a good one if it helps with sleep as well glycines helps form gaba which is kind of calms you down um citrate is used in the citric acid cycle so it helps with energy production also helps with producing more bicarbonate in the liver so like people that are having issues with you know if they're finding they get digestive distress when they have a lot of protein maybe they want to be producing a bit more bicarbonate to kind of neutralize the acid as it gets through their digestive tract so citrate's not a bad one there um like three and eight magnesium three and eight is more expensive but that's one of the only ones that crosses the blood brain barrier um that helps with obviously improving like energy production within the brain which has a doubt one of the most well studied magnesiums with respect to helping sleep um so magnesium's in 
This is like the longest answer that anyone's ever given to the five something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luke, scrap the fucking podcast. It's just going to be about the top five supplements. <laughs> the, um, I think zinc, zinc, yeah, zinc is a solid one as well. Because if it's uh, like this one, again, people are pretty astoundingly deficient in zinc. Um, given, you know, we need uh, zinc to produce insulin as well. So, like, within the actual, like, pancreatic islets like that you actually use zinc to actually make crystals of insulin so people that are deficient in in zinc can actually run the risk of having shitty blood glucose management um, you need zinc for optimal insulin receptor function you need zinc for thyroid production as well as like produce you know pushing um t t4 to t3 conversion um thyroid receptor function you need zinc for um optimal production of um, well, Leydig cells producing testosterone, so it helps with that. So it's it's a pretty key one. Um, so I would uh, I'd say zinc's zinc's a good shout and a pretty safe one to supplement with. Um, Jarrow do a pretty good zinc zinc balance. It's a uh, I've forgotten the type of zinc, but it's with I believe it's with copper, and zinc has the capacity to deplete copper if you overdo it. So it kind of balances out quite well with that. Mm. Um, and then. Um, um, my uh, greens powder oh jeez how did I miss the greens mate we, yeah I mean <laughs> we all know that AJ is a, is a big fan of the um, Nutridyne fruits well, and greens stockist now <laughs> <laughs> every time the chocolate comes back in stock it goes out of stock the next day because AJ just fills his bum with it <laughs> but that, that stuff's the bomb um, and, it, and that's, that comes down to there, there's a few ways you can look at that because some people think that and I was just a guest on Joe Jeffrey's podcast, and we this came up that you know greens powders are awesome in terms of the world we live in today with you know the level of pollution, nutrient depletion, um, the you know the fact that when we buy veggies they've travelled halfway across the world to get to us. The, 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 by the time they get to us, the level of nutrients in them isn't potentially as good as it you know as good as it once was. So in short, you know, topping that up with a greens powder is pretty good. The only downside to that is you have these greens powders that quite low in quality they're proprietary blends you don't know actually how much is in them they contain such a super dosed amount of phytonutrients and and you know that's the benefit of, of using them is that you get these phytonutrients that have been lost but you know there's there's reason to think that you would want you know the the phytonutrients in a natural kind of quantity that you get in these in these plant foods without super dosing it in conjunction with an adequate amount of fiber which some of these greens powders don't have so the human body might not respond to it in the same way um i've not seen any evidence for that and there isn't really that's kind of hypothesis in the same way people go oh you know magnesium people taking 300 milligrams of magnesium you're not going to find that in any food and it's like yeah fair play but there's no evidence to suggest that it's actually bad it's just different <laughs> um so i think greens powder would be a very good shout especially with the lack of veg in people's diets these days that's appalling um, that's like the number one thing that i'll get when i get clients come to me and you see their food diary like the, the biggest concern i get before i see you know before i even get concerned with the level of processed foods in a diet is like oh my god they're eating like two two amount you know two portions of veggies a day oh dear that needs to change um so greens powder so we've got zinc magnesium creatine greens powder and uh, krill oil boom so krill oil is one of my favorites um and it's like people look at krill oil and they're like oh it's you know it does the same thing as fish oil and it's way more expensive fuck it i'll just use i'll just use fish oil the difference between the two is krill oil is in like fatty acids in krill oil are in phospholipid form whereas the ones in Fish oil are in triglyceride form. Phospholipids are uh, absorbed like twice as effectively, so it becomes cost equivalent because you need half the amount to get the same effect. Plus, krill oil has a much higher level of antioxidants in. Um, so, from a from a, you know addressing issues with oxidative stress and supporting inflammation and stuff, there seems to be more of a benefit for krill oil. And the research is pretty solid on krill oil. Um, you just got to make sure you have got a good source of it. Jaro do another good one there. Um, but the uh yeah i mean the benefits of everyone knows the benefits of 
omega threes, EPA, DHA. EPA is amazing at you know managing information. DHA is one of the key things that has led to human brain development and produce its ability to help with like myelination and just general brain function, which again, you know, our last guest on our podcast covered pretty well. Um, but the um, yeah, I think the and like krill oil because it's less often done um less often sold it seems to be sourced in quite a nice way whereas you get some pretty dodgy fish oils out there because it's easier to source um so like i'd, I'd say those are the, probably the top five okay awesome yeah. great stuff was that i'm like... sure that answered that guy's oh. question <laughs> <laughs> awesome answer so moving on can caffeine cause digestion problems if consumed with a meal this is from stefan we're going to run into issues with caffeine being had at the same time as a meal. I, I, the, the, from what I'd say is no. If you have like quite a, you get some people that have caffeine and it triggers quite, you know, triggers bowel movements pretty readily. And that's one of the reasons people use it. You know, they, they have caffeine and then they need to go for shit. <laughs> um, the, if, if you're finding it's causing like gastrointestinal upset, then maybe be wary of it. I, I've, I don't think there's much. I've I've never seen it causing too much of an issue. the The issue I would have with consuming caffeine in a meal is that it has been shown to actually, and coffee in particular has been shown to inhibit the absorption of certain nutrients because it is in a sense an anti nutrient, um, particularly iron. But the the only population this is important with is really like vegans and vegetarians. So people that are because non heme iron which is the iron found in plant foods is so poorly absorbed in comparison to heme iron and it's not poorly absorbed it's just regulated in its absorption so heme iron is the stuff you know iron bound to a heme molecule that we get in plant in animal foods um and it's not regulated in its absorption and you look at the research and people are like oh yeah heme iron's amazing and it's because it's really well absorbed heme iron's also incredibly pro-oxidative and, and it's like, like so it can cause a lot of oxidative damage and it's associated with a lot of issues with health when overconsumed. Non-heme iron isn't very well absorbed, but what they found is the human body can regulate its absorption quite well. So when you're low in iron stores, it will upregulate the ability to absorb non-heme iron. When you're when you're adequate stores, it, you won't absorb it well. And that's what they've studied incorrectly, as they've looked at populations where they've got pretty adequate, you know, iron stores in in the form of ferritin, and then they've concluded that non-heme iron's terribly absorbed when in fact it's actually just the case that the human body's like no i've got enough of that um the what but the the issue uh, back to the caffeine thing if you're using because non-heme iron isn't particularly well absorbed in comparison to heme iron if you're a vegetarian and you're consuming coffee with meals or you're basically preventing the capacity or like kind of impacting your capacity to absorb an already you know hard to absorb nutrient mm -hmm. so if you're a vegetarian vegan i would say keep caffeine coffee half an hour away from meals to be safe um and it kind of comes onto the thing of if you are a vegetarian vegan you've got to be pretty strategic if you want to do it well sure. It's, sure. it's not as simple as just oh, i don't eat meat you've got to if you want to be healthy you've got to really go and figure out what foods to eat and how to eat them but um, yeah, the I think that's the only time I'd be wary about personally about caffeine with meals. I think it, unless you you are you're having some sort of reaction to it that you don't realise you get. You know, some people do have reactions, um, and um, like the, and it could be down to the actual type of coffee. Like we know there are a lot of coffees out there that are actually kept in warehouses, and they the the actual coffee grinds and beans get quite moldy before they're actually packeted up and if people have a mold susceptibility then that could be an issue but that's the only time i as far as i know that I, it would be an issue okay cool um i like this question from callum uh, callum curry he asks if you could run any study cost free what would it be and why oh fuck me <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> i would Personally, I'd look at. There's one me and my one of my mentors, Jacques Taylor, were talking about the other day. He's a neuroscientist, and yeah, he mentioned it on the study, and we, we were kind of discussing how awesome it would be. But it was um, how 
there's like a massive this is a big change of topic actually um the massive difference between concentric contractions eccentric contractions isometric which technically you would turn differently if you're like you'd call it an isoangular contraction but the um like the that in terms of their ability to induce hypertrophy there's so much debate in terms of and it comes down to what's actually going on in the neuromuscular system during those contractions and that you know a lot of people go oh yeah eccentrics are, are the ones for hypertrophy but you look at kind of the mechanisms for hypertrophy in that you know muscle damage yes that's a, something we want but we also know it's way harder to recover from and we know that to get the most muscle damage you have to eccentrically load a muscle in its length and third range but we also know you can get hypertrophy outside of that I mean, and you know creating an energy crisis in a tissue like a lot of metabolic demand is a mechanism for that and, and you can do that pretty well on a concentric contraction um but no one's ever looked at what happens if you exclusively do one or the other and we were talking about you could have like four groups where you have one group that does a concentric contraction only for 12 weeks one group that does an eccentric contraction one group that does both one group that does nothing one group and one group that does an isometric you know what you know you know all the groups that you need to do and then compare the results but also you know control for all the things like get someone who actually understands exercise to set this stuff what stuff up well um and be able to get each group to spend the same amount of time on each contraction because people could run that study and be like oh yeah yeah the the you know the there was no difference but all groups weren't regulated and how long they were spending during each contraction that would be an insane study because it would be a way to almost you know you know close the book on okay this this type of contraction is actually the best for hypertrophy and that's what we should be biasing because at the moment it's not there's a lot of kind of misinterpreted research out there um you know people comparing concentrics and, and eccentrics and they're not actually comparable in the conditions they 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 conduct the research in when you consider like if, if you're lifting a 20 kilo dumbbell you know you've got to produce enough force you've got to produce more than 20 kilos of force to lift the dumbbell but then they compare that to the to the lowering of that you know the eccentric contraction of the same 20 kilo dumbbell whereas in the eccentric contraction of that movement you've got all you've got to do is you know control the weight down you're producing less than 20 kilos of force so is it comparable to com you know is it is it fair to compare the two probably not so if, if someone was able to do that study well that would be phenomenal that would be good yeah. <laughs> that would be good cool so uh, connor asks what does heart rate variability mean and what how does it affect us so heart rate variability is basically the amount of like the variability between your heartbeat so in terms of um it's basically the, the time duration between heartbeats and people look at um there's a lot like there was a study that came out recently that kind of poo-pooed it but it was an awful study it was a terrible study <laughs> me and cal got tagged in it and i just destroyed it <laughs> but the um the the is basically signifies the the kind of balance of your autonomic nervous system so that the shorter the time between your heartbeats the more suggestive it is that you are in a sympathetic dominant state which is kind of the fight or flight branch of the autonomic nervous system the the further spaced apart the beats are and more kind of irregular um is more of a you know more suggestive of kind of parasympathetic you know rest and digest feed and breathe side of the nervous system which is kind of if you're looking to maximize things like digestion sleep you, you know recovery you want to be able to like me and Caltown quite a lot flip the switch you want to be able to move between those two branches of the of the autonomic nervous system when needed so when we're training and we're trying to perform we want to be able to get into that sympathetic state well when we're outside of training we want to be able to get into that calm state pretty well and that's what we'll use it for so in terms of like tracking how you know the, the load we're placing on someone with our programming and nutrition and stuff like what's what's it suggesting of their nervous system and like some people take that and this is what the study suggested like when you take that in a training scenario and try and base recovery off that it doesn't really make a difference and i think that's fair because it was never you you know they, they were basically comparing 
you know, HRV, well, like studying HRV as a tool for in, improving hypertrophy because you'll essentially be more well rested going into each session. So logically, you should accrue greater levels of muscle and strength. Doesn't doesn't work like that. What it is a good gauge for is like how stressed out someone is. So what, like I'll use it, but I won't. If someone gets a reading that they wake up one day and they're like, oh, I'm quite you know quite sympathetic today, you know, I've, and like my my app says I should take it easy. First question I always ask them is how do you actually feel? And nine times out of ten they're like I feel pretty good, and it's like okay, crack on, mate. Like the um, the, but if if someone's you know wakes up and they're like actually I feel pretty shit, you know I'd be like okay maybe you should take a rest day. But all that's going to inform is maybe we, I need to look at where how you know where I place volume, not oh this guy's got to have another couple of rest days before he goes back in. It's going to be a case of if that st- if that thing becomes a pattern, then it would be like okay maybe. You know that lower session that keeps leading to that HRV reading is a little too much for him at this point in time, mm-hmm. um, and it just kind of informs how, how, as a coach, I'm structuring their plan as opposed to how they ought to live their lives, which is the the way that people get it wrong. They kind of you you, you want to use it as a tool to um, figure out the allostatic load that's placed on your body as opposed to using you know get, getting a reading off an app and be like oh my god i can't train today i'm you know this app is telling me i can't train when you actually probably feel pretty good yeah like, yeah you know so, so you looking more at trends of data that's being collected as opposed to a singular event of fuck it's it's yeah, yeah. not right yeah it's, it's, it's more and uh, do you track it with your clients i do with some not with all yeah and it's it, it what i found is it's more of a I, I almost tell clients to disregard it now. I just say, just put it on the checking sheet. Yeah, Don't worry yeah. about it. That's for me to worry about, not you. It's like, scale. It's like any data, isn't it? Like you, the, the stress of the load of the data, you want to kind of take that away from the client and you want to be the analytical one that says yeah. this is right or this is wrong. Yeah. 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 Nice. So, yeah. And what would you obviously use an aura ring, but for anyone that doesn't currently track up HRV and doesn't want to invest in an aura ring, um, what would what would your initial sort of uh, HRV starter pack be in terms of taking the data? Uh, he doesn't want to track it. No, no, they do want to track it. Like, so right. what would you use if you're not using an aura aura ring? So, yeah, so the best app for it at the moment seems to be one called HRV Four Training, and that's spelt HRV the number four training. That's so we were using Elite HRV, but like. And that's a very common one. The HRV4 training one you have to pay for, but it, the guy who's designed it has used a far, far more accurate algorithm. Okay. Um, and the, the Elite HRV one is a little bit annoying with the, that's the one that tends to confuse people with the, the readiness score it gives you every morning. Yeah. Because if there's a big change, regardless of what the reading's like, so you could have a really good reading, but because there's been a big change, it tends to tell you to just take it easy and it's like, why like it's just like that's that's it doesn't make a lot of sense whereas the hrv4 training one seems to match up more without actually how people are feeling um, okay. but it's sort of like the it costs a bit more but it's just more accurate and then you'd use that with a, a polar h10 heart rate monitor seems to be the best most accurate way of doing that in terms of like heart rate monitors the polar the polar series tend to be like they've done studies where they've compared how accurate these kind of generic heart rate monitors are compared to like you know lab heart rate monitors and and the polar series kind of come out on top every time um so i'd use those nice cool um so let's ask a nutrition based question as we haven't really had one of those yet so uh we got asked uh, your opinion on this is a an approach uh, sort of more brought to the front by a guy called Broderick Chavez. Do you know who Broderick Chavez is? He's, I know he's the been name. on a few podcasts here and there. Um, so he's... On yours? No, he hasn't been on mine. Um, his, his approach to uh, gaining phases from a nutrition perspective is that of like higher carb massing. So his thought process behind that is that we keep fats as low as possible and ramp up carbohydrates as high as possible because fats beyond a certain degree don't offer or yield any further benefit above that sort of 0.8 grams per kilogram threshold um so that's his thought process on that as far as i'm aware um and anyone can correct me on 
why that thought process may be wrong. But what's what's your thoughts on that? You know, prioritizing purely carbohydrates in a in a gaining phase for tissue accrual and, and obviously keeping fats at maybe even close to what they would be in a in a diet phase. What's your opinions? Mm. Good question. I think it's I'm always skeptical when someone comes out with a generic, uh, you know, generic uh, statement regarding nutrition training supplementation. Like everyone should do this. I'm like, you realize we're dealing with human beings and we're all different, right? <laughs> um, I think it's hard to, to to generalize sort of stuff like that. So I think I'm always skeptical. But like, there's there's you know, I think there's I think if you are trying to it's difficult like i think the, the thing about like massing phases is it kind of regardless of where you place stuff i think down to the fats you could put fats wherever you want i think what comes down to with fats is you need to have the right ratios of like you actually need to pay attention to what fats you're eating um like people kind of just go yeah i've, I've got my fats at 80 grams and i get it all from peanut butter and dark chocolate and so okay you realize there are other fats out there um <laughs> <laughs> the but it's like, uh, like there's there's certain health benefits associated with, like, with different fat sources. And, and you know, people look at saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated. People tend to graduate. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Graduate. Um, they, they tend to be drawn to. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Um, saturated fats for some reason. There's a lot of. I put a, a, there's a story highlight on my profile about this. Like people um gravitate that's the one <laughs> gravitate towards these because there's a lot of like hearsay at the moment that oh yeah saturated fats are great everyone should be eating saturated fats but there's no real back backing to that other than people have started putting butter in coffee and feeling pretty good and there's a few saturated fats out there that do carry health benefits but you know that you look at a you look at fats and as a as a broad term like saturated fats well there's like 26 different types of saturated fat and they all have different effects monounsaturated fats there's tons of different you know tons of different ones of them polyunsaturated the health benefits of fats tend to be associated more with a very small amount of saturated fats than more of the monounsaturated and polyunsaturated so i think if yeah. you're going to get into the fat side fat debate you need to pay it needs to pay attention between those two and if someone was like predominantly having saturated fats i would say i wouldn't push your fat intake too high because there's not enough health benefits associated with them if someone had a pretty good range of fats in terms of like monounsaturated fats polyunsaturated fats like olive oil avocado macadamia nuts walnut oils for you know walnuts and walnut oils for polyunsaturated i think there's room to play around with increasing fat intake because you're going to get a different effect from having them in um the the carb side of things and it's like the thing about amassing phase in general i i would this is where i like to i would always go i wouldn't go off like i'm going to push you know food as high as i can i'd be like i'm going to put you put food in a good place to ensure that things start moving in the right direction and i'm going to monitor health markers and make sure that nothing goes too crazy because you know hypertrophy massing putting on tissue is an you know a signaling dependent process and it's dependent on your body being able to respond to the signals we're creating in the gym from an acute perspective and, and the if we let information get away from us then it's gonna impede that process and i think that always happens when people kind of unnecessarily push food high and i don't think people need to push food as high as they think um and i think I think preferentially I would probably push carbs a little bit higher. Um, I think people pushing protein higher, I spoke about this on the podcast, Joe Jeffrey's podcast the other day, protein being pushed is just pointless because, you know, even if you're an assisted athlete, the benefit you get in being able to, like, use more dietary protein for muscle protein than it's just fair play, you don't get any additional benefits of being able to break that down in your digestive system, and that's what's ultimately going to shoot you in the foot. Sure. Um, but the, the carbs... I think as a growth stimulus, I think there is more of a benefit to having them higher, provided someone can handle it, um, provided your ability to use glucose well is, is you know, more uh, quote-unquote optimal. And I think provided you're able to actually, you know, your energy and activity levels and intensity in the gym actually warrants a pretty high amount of carbohydrates. Um, I mean, I, I, 
So would, would, you, would you in that case, because uh, I think, um, I'm not sure this is like part across in his theory, but would you be in the, in the, in the mind to suggest a, a higher fat approach to a rest day caloric intake with the training days being such low in fats? You know? So if we were going around that 0 0.8 grams per kilogram mark on a training day, would you suggest a high intake on a, on a rest day for, I don't know, increased starchy diversity and things like that and making sure that you're getting in, you know, a diversity of essential fatty acids because how, 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 how much are you going to really be able to get in of, you know, wide diverse sources on a training day where your carbs are ramped up and your fats are minimal? Um, mm -hmm. You're going to run into a lot of trace fats and no real sources of you know, actual mm -hmm. direct fats. That That's the issue that I actually see with the approach because I don't think the suggestion is there for someone to have someone to have higher fats on a rest day, I believe that they just keep the caloric intake the same on a training day and a rest day. Oh, really? So, that, yeah. yeah, I think, I think all that, it's, it's a thing, because, like, if, if someone's, you know, ultimately, you know, I hate to say it, I'll get bored, I'm going to drop the bomb on this in our seminar. <laughs> start, I've got the funniest start to our seminar, which is going to involve energy balance, and I'm going to say it once, and I'm not going to say it again. Um, <laughs> it is, it does come down to energy balance in the sense of, like, when, you know, if someone keeps food the same every day, fair play, it just means like you're not going to be able to push food a lot, you know, as high as you probably could on a training day. And, you know, if you did were to push food high on a training day, you would have to decrease it a bit on a non-training day. Swings and roundabouts. I think what I like to, you know, I, I play around with it. Some people I do have food the same on training and non-training days and it works really well based on their lifestyle. Some people... I do like to push fats a little bit higher and pull carbs down and pull calories down because their activity levels don't demand much, you know, very high caloric intake on their rest days. But also, I think there's a benefit to actually promoting metabolic flexibility. Like people having like yeah, both yeah. amounts of carbs on their rest days, you know, it pays to get people's bodies to actually start exploring other ways to produce energy. And I think putting fats a little bit higher provided their ability to deal with fats from a digestive perspective is good, which to some people, if they've come from a place of very low fats and you, people will notice this and then they go, oh, I've been having 30 grams of fats a day and I've just seen so-and-so has 120 grams. Fuck it, I'm going to go on 120 grams. Like they, they may have experienced like down regulation in their bile production and that's, you know, to because of having such low fats and that's ultimately going to mean they can't process as much fat as, as that person who's on 120 grams a day. So if you are going to start working your fats up, do it slowly. Um, and, and if you start getting gastrointestinal distress, then consult with someone who actually knows what they're doing on that. But the, um, I think, yes, I, I, do like the idea of putting fats a little bit higher and i mm. don't like the idea of putting fats low like if I, if I someone comes to me and their fats are like sub and this is bias so don't this isn't you know i have a, everyone has personal bias and i'm well aware that i have mine um like i don't like putting fats below 60 grams unless i have to <laughs> um and i think when people are like going around on like 30 grams of fat and that 30 grams of fat is coming from trace sources of fat from like animal protein and stuff like that it's probably not the wisest thing to do for a health health perspective and when you consider like health and performance ultimately go hand in hand yeah, yeah. i would i would be more I, people need to definitely pay more attention to their fat intake mm, yeah and i think yeah. it's it's common amongst the most bodybuilding diets to have a very low fat approach because yeah. you know common bodybuilding diets don't like you don't really look at fats being included in a bodybuilding meal plan you might be lucky if you get something like eggs if people are using eggs in a you know yeah. the amount of people like following very sort of standard old school bodybuilding diets out there mate it's still a, an absolute abundance okay. um and you know the amount of people that i've had come to me that are on you know when you work it out what they're actually consuming you know the fats are extremely low um just because that's what they've been told to do or what uh, what they think is right um but yeah i think that's interesting i just wanted to cover that one and get your thoughts but, but just add a little bit more like people people look at bodybuilding and hypertrophy and stuff through a very narrow like telescope you could say like you know they look at your microscope and, and you know they're like oh yeah if it's not anabolic i'm not considering it and it's like you know fats you look at it you know people aren't going to study fats and be like oh yeah this you know Olive oil is fucking anabolic, mate. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's not about whether something's 
directly anabolic it's about you know the downstream effects of including it in terms of does it help you manage inflammation and improve health which is in turn going to indirectly increase your ability to run anabolic processes yeah and then you look at but you do look at things like fish oil and you know we spoke about dha early dha um earlier the you know that's one of the reasons we have such amazing we've developed such amazing brain capacities as human beings because we ate so much seafood if someone suddenly go you know spends their whole life eating trace amounts of fat from shitty protein sources that have been farmed and you know and all this stuff and it's like okay you know you you can improve everything by you know like we spoke about earlier that you know muscular activity is you know predicated by the nervous system um or predicated on optimal nervous system activity so you know fats supporting things from that perspective as well but like cell membranes and everything like that like eat was one of the things like you get people that don't consume enough omega-3s epa and they get very rigid cell walls and then their ability to actually get things in and out of their cells and you know cell signaling is imp- impacted so massively and then you they wonder why they're running into health issues and stuff like that and so it's you know people do need to um pay more attention to that and you and you know you even look at research they found that omega-3 you know official can actually activate mTOR it is so i suppose it is anabolic <laughs> so people who want to take my word for it then get on the official just don't start going crazy on it because you can take too much in and actually go the other way and make yourself your cells too um like the cell walls not rigid enough so so people that are like oh my god i'll start having 50 grams of fish oil a day which has been done you know you can um run into some serious issues in terms of leaky cells and also an inability to clot so if you then cut yourself in a car accident you're gonna die <laughs> brilliant yeah so be, be careful with that shit yeah. <laughs> it just shows like why how you know the, the the effect how profound that's the effect fats can have on our on our physiologies yeah. get them in people <laughs> so we'll cover one more question um so basically the question is regarding night shifts and it's actually more so regarding training but i think it would be good to get your thoughts on a little bit of nutrition and training for night shifts because i know that you know you're you're a huge fan of of getting fantastic sleep and sleep health sleep hygiene and night shifts tend to just completely ruin that um so what would what like in terms of just looking at night shifts in general especially someone that maybe has so doesn't consistently work night shifts, maybe transitions between day and night. Um, what would your generic advice would be for nutrition and training surrounding night shift workers? Mm. So first things first, I'm not a doctor. So everything I'm about to say, take it with a pinch of salt. <laughs> and consult a uh, someone who's actually qualified to speak about this before you implement it. Um, but like the thing about night shift, people got to understand, it, it has been now classified as a group 2a carcinogen um so it is like which is a, a probable carcinogen so it's not been confirmed that it's carcinogenic which is like cancer causing but it is very likely that all the research is correlating like it's suggesting that that correlation is, is evident um but obviously they haven't established causation yet but what we know is like circadian biology and like the, the disruption we get to our circadian biology our circadian rhythms from night shift work is pretty astounding and it's that disruption that seems to cause most of the health benefit health um issues associated with it um and you look at the research of it like you know people women that you know have a do a lot of night shift work incur a massive risk of breast cancer development um and like the rates of breast cancer in those populations are pretty damn high um but it comes down to the level of information that we get hit with like matthew walker's spoken about this on podcast where you know they they've done like studies where they've given people good sleep and then they've disrupted their sleep for one night and i think they gave them like four hours sleep or something and they they found a a 70 percent reduction in their natural killer cell production which and the natural killer cells are the guys that fight cancer so that's from one night and then you add that you know give that to someone for 30 40 years of their life and then you wonder why they turn around with cancer at some point so oh because you've been living the last 30 40 years with a 70 percent lowered ability to fight cancer um the um 
it's it's what you got to understand though with night shift is you can't beat it if you're going to do it you're going to be fucked you've got to learn how to like minimize the effect and support the areas of your body that are going to be taking a hit and there's a there's a strat i think dr dean who is a one of the guys who worked with us at supplements need supplement needs a lot of people follow him he's posted some good stuff on night shifts because he does it personally what i've read i've got clients with that i have like my own strategy that i use um and it seems to work pretty well but it basically involves being able to and it's kind of entirely pretty much entirely supplemental the only nutritional side of things is you wouldn't want to eat while you're on the night shift so fasting mm. is, is going to be a very very key thing because and, it, and that goes with like people doing you know overnight flights you know people go on a on a flight overnight or even just a long haul flight that spans a point in the night you know, point of the day where they'd normally be asleep eating and even drinking quite a lot during that time you're giving your body a stimulus that's not used to receiving um you know people go on a, on a plane they're like oh yeah i didn't fast but i ate i, I drank three liters of water it's like i don't think you'd normally drink three liters of water while you're, while you're asleep mate <laughs> um but the uh so it's like implementing those things so fasting's a good shout because you're basically going to ensure that you're and, and this way like circadian rhythms are they're present in like every tissue in the body so there's like the suprachiasmatic nucleus which is in our hypothalamus um in our in our brain and that's like the master clock and then all the other clocks in the tissues in our body respond to that they're, co they're kind of trained by that but if we put food into our digestive system there are circadian clocks like peripheral clocks in our digestive tract in our liver that will then get kind of reset and throw the whole system off so people kind of go oh yeah well i'll eat in the middle of the night when i'm doing a night shift and they've just kind of retrained some of those clocks and it kind of causes an imbalance in that system mm. um the so eating avoiding loads of drink probably avoid that blue light blocking glasses get them in because obviously avoid you know minimizing the effect of that um artificial light which is going to sit like disrupt that super charismatic nucleus which is response to light coming in the eye so putting on like blockers like that is going to be a good shout just to minimize the effect that that's going to have mm -hmm. but then from a supplemental standpoint which is when it becomes more of a uh an expensive thing you basically need to find a way where you can jump in and manually reset the system and that comes with melatonin so people like melatonin being the hormone or neurotransmitter hormone that we produce endogenously in dark towards the later periods of the day that entrains our suprachiasmatic nucleus and kind of is one of the key drivers for sleep if we can find a way to kind of get that guy to come back on when it's been disrupted which is what happens if people go through a night shift and then they kind of lose that natural melatonin production if you get some supplemental melatonin which you can't actually get in the uk unless you get it prescribed or you know you have contacts in america or there is one website i know of that i can get it on which is legit <laughs> but it's because it's all from america no, that's um, that's so, I, so my clients are lucky because i can just hook them up with that <laughs> but the um but the um I have to give that to Asia to get sort out as well. <laughs> yeah, but the, the that basically will give you the opportunity to kind of jump in and manually reset it. So following the night shift that evening, some people take melatonin during the night shift. I've got, I know a few clients of Ryan's, uh, my colleague Ryan, and I've got a client that can't do that because melatonin makes you drowsy and they've got to operate motor vehicles while they're on their night shift. Because and so taking melatonin while doing that pretty stupid. Um, but the following night you basically you take you know take a few couple of milligrams of melatonin to kind of reset things and get that you like, you know artificially reset the clock yeah um and then but also during the night shift itself because of, like we spoke about that effect that hit that you're going to take for your ability to respond to oxidative stress and the amount of oxidative stress you're going to incur being able to support that um is a pretty good idea what i found is using like some form of antioxidant support but liposomal glutathione or nac uh, which is n-acetylcysteine which converts to glutathione which is like the third most potent antioxidant in the body um 
like the, it's the only one we can supplement with as well as two above it like one called superoxide dismutase and one called catalase but you can't you can't supplement with them because they're not stable enough um but zinc actually helps with catalase which is one of the reasons why you'd have that and then selenium i think is used in the other one so selenium's not a bad one but the um uh but the glutathione liposomal glutathione i'm gonna plug my supplement sponsor supplement needs to do a damn good one um and there, but there are some other ones out there but is it is a very good supplement in terms of being able to support your body and give it more of an, an ability to fend off that oxidative stress because basically you know we create a lot of oxidative stress in our mitochondria and, and stuff like that which is damaging to our bodily tissues and the antioxidants like glutathione essentially they basically work by the, the we produce a lot of free radicals or reactive oxygen species which are these kind of like nutty molecules that come out of our mitochondria and do damage and the antioxidants essentially work as like they sacrifice themselves for us so they will basically take these you know bind to these molecules and kind of take them out of commission before they can damage us so glutathione is a good shout for that and there's some some form of curcumin to uh to actually manage inflammation as well because we, we you would you're very likely to incur quite high levels of inflammation from night shift work. So putting in curcumin, it's been well studied for that. And again, supplement needs to do a good liposomal curcumin. I spoke to AJ about this because curcumin has quite a good capacity to help with reducing inflammation in like more ways than just that. So in terms of like the injury AJ's had, like he, you know, there's liposomal curcumin, phytosome curcumin, uh, BCM 95 which is another form of curcumin and biocurcumin and like they kind of from liposomal down they get less and less effective so if you have liposomal you need less if you have phytosome you need a little bit more but not quite as much if you have the BCM 95 you need a bit more and if you have the biocurcumin you need a decent amount to get the same effect but the um they're, they're those three in that order so you'd probably have the glutathione and the curcumin during the night shift and preceding it and then the following night, you'd use the melatonin to basically restart the system and get everything back on track. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. Not so, bad. In terms of like training, obviously, would you recommend that they, if they were switching between day and night shifts, where would you, like, where would you try and situate the majority of their sessions? Would it be on the days on the days that they're working day shifts and training in the evenings so they can not switch back into a normal sleep cycle throughout the night or would it be after the night shifts or would it just be you know a case of doing all the things that you've mentioned and then managing to fit in your training in and in around that i just realized i missed out a few things but i can i can say them now mm -hmm. the uh, the training the day after a night shift i'd say don't even bother in the same way training a day after people have just over consumed on alcohol yeah don't even bother people are like, oh yeah i'm going to the gym i've just had a really heavy night out you've just like created so much information actually compromised hypertrophic signaling to such an acute degree there's no point in like going to the gym because you're not actually going to get anything out of it and you're just going to play make it harder for your body to recover same thing following a night shift the the inflammation in oxidative stress you've just incurred from the sleep deprivation don't even bother um literally the, and this is where i left out the main fucking bit which is lifestyle strategies get as much daylight as you can the following day following a night shift so get like get out in the sun um get barefoot on some ground on like grass if you can so ground do some grounding if people people think grounding is hippie just google go on pubmed and type in grounding and information the the amount of research out there supporting grounding's effect at reducing inflammation is insane and it comes back to that antioxidant thing like when we're in contact with the earth without electronics on us so don't do it with your phones on you um you soak up a lot of free electrons from the earth and that's what antioxidants provide so antioxidants like ala and some of those antioxidant you know glutathione itself as well they provide electrons for those reactive oxygen species to so that the electrons basically sacrifice themselves on those antioxidants uh, on those oxidative reactive oxygen species but um so soaking up those from the earth is a free way of improving information but being in contact with the earth from its like native electromagnetic fields um 
is very good for resetting human physiology and like circadian rhythms, but getting light in as well. People want an idea on how powerful light is. Listen to the last episode on our Muscle Mentors podcast because it's a fucking game changer. Um, but like just doing those two things is, is massive. Um, and that's how I'd spend the following day doing a night shift. But leading into a night shift, if you want to train, train. Um, just know that you're probably not going to be set up well to recover from that session, so I wouldn't go crazy with it. Um, I would, I would, if you want to train, I'd almost approach that session as you would a deload, like kind of go in and just like do something productive, but don't try and absolutely destroy your nervous system and immune system. Speak because the immune system is what we hit when we, you know, when we try and, you know, elicit a hypertrophic response. Our immune system is one of the main things that's responding there. And if we're going into the gym doing some massive leg session and then going and doing a night shift when we're going to where our immune system is going to be then compromised even further your ability to recover from that isn't great so if you were really on it you'd probably take those two days off mm-hmm. uh, and say yeah. like the day but if you wanted to do something just don't go crazy and then have the following day off and get let get loads of daylight awesome. or ground yeah. cool. that's pretty much covered that question fantastically so Awesome, Luke. Um, I think we'll leave it there for questions. We said we'll wrap it about an hour. So um, thank you very much for some incredible answers as always. You definitely didn't disappoint on any of those. And I'm sure people are uh, led away with some, some fantastic information to take home. So guys, as always, like, thank you very much for listening to us chat away for an hour. Um, if you've got any further questions or clarification on any of the topics that Luke covered, just shoot them in the comment box and um, I'll let Luke know if there's anything that he needs to get back to in there. Um, but I'm yeah, sure. Just, just slide in my DMs because I always ask. Exactly. People. Yeah. That's another way to get to Luke. Um, if you ask him about exercise mechanics in his DMs, he'll probably do an entire hour of topic for you. <laughs> just get excited. <laughs> um, but yeah, guys, make sure you follow Luke as well. I'll leave his Instagram as the first link in the bio. So give him a follow um, and, and watch and what watch, watch what he does and learn from it. Um, and also, what are your dates? I know that the tickets haven't been released yet, but uh, oh. just remind people of the dates for the uh, for the seminar that you're running at Ultimate with uh, with the rest of the Muscle Mentors team. Yeah, so we're doing uh, on April 27th and 28th. We're doing a theory weekend, which is actually going to be covering similar stuff to what we talked about. Like I'm going to be going through like the gastrointestinal system, sleep, circadian biology. James is going to be doing a bit on mindset and psychology cal's going to be going through um female physiology and kind of training and nutritional implications for that um we're going to do some kind of like nutritional strategies for maximizing hypertrophy there'll be some stuff on supplementation it's, it's going to be pretty deep and then there'll be we're doing a practical weekend on the uh 7th and 8th of june i believe uh, no sorry 8th and 9th of june uh which is going to be going through exercise mechanics in a pretty deep way um and like kind of giving people the basics of strength profiles resistance profiles like understanding how to set up and cue exercises properly and what sort of things they'll have to take into account when they're trying to fit individuals or fit exercises to an individual as opposed to fitting individuals into an exercise um and uh, basically personalizing the approach but also just making you know applying that to the whole hypertrophy side of things and and like how people want to structure training programs with regards to actually getting the most out of it whilst remaining injury free and, and getting, you know, the most bang for their buck, basically. Cool. It should be juicy. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, keep an eye out for, for when tickets get released for that. And other than that, I think that's it. So yeah, guys, thanks for listening and we'll chat in the next one. Cheers for having me, man. See you in a bit. Cool. Thank you, dude. That was awesome. That was sweet. I didn't have to do any work for that one. I just sat here and listened. <laughs> <laughs>